Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Transplant's Take on Sport. My name's Lewis Daniels and joining me today is two-time kidney transplant recipient and climber, mountaineer and runner, Tara Bashford. Tara is incredibly determined and talks through her traumatic transplant experience, trekking across mountains around the world, her impressive fundraising efforts and her love of cake. I think, like me, you'll take a lot from Tara's experiences as her story really is inspirational. If you're enjoying the podcast, then please make sure you subscribe or follow wherever you normally get your podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, it would mean a huge amount to me if you could rate the podcast five stars on the show page to help more people see it. And if you'd like to follow the podcast on social media, all the links will be in the show notes. Tara Bashford, welcome to Transpats Take on Sport. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's good to have you on. I think you were the first person that I ever met with a transplant, well, knowingly met with a transplant, once I found out I needed mine. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's quite cool, actually. <laughs> uh, I think it was that day, I think you were setting up Camkin, which we'll come on to later on. And I'd been told by the living donor coordinator to come along because he's generally in waiting rooms. I don't know if you agree with me on this one or not. Uh, when you sat in transplant clinic waiting rooms, you're generally surrounded by people older than we are, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. And it can be really intimidating when you first go in and you look around and you go, I see nobody under the age of 50 right now. Um, and when you do see a young person, you kind of pounce on them and you want to just be for, be their friend and uh, kind of chat about it all. So yeah, I, I get that. <laughs> So speaking of us both having transplants and you really, I noticed that in my mind, I was about six months before transplant, I think. Um, it was, oh, people my age with a transplant do just go on and live a life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it needs to be seen like that. Um, yeah, it can be a, a long process and for some people it can be a long recovery and it can be tricky. But at the end of the day, you've been given this wonderful gift in whatever way um, it's been given to you, whether that's a living donor or a deceased donor. And I think that you should kind of do it justice in a way. Um, and that means, you know, there are some restrictions, you know, about 
taking all of your drugs and maybe you have to avoid certain things but generally you need to go and live a normal life otherwise what is the point of going through it all yeah and both been through it let's go right back to the start when did you first find out that you had kidney problems um so I was in the second year of college um and I went for my tonsils out um I funny enough and running up to it they were like your blood pressure's a bit high you know you must just be nervous and I was like yeah yeah whatever um I'd have had operations before so I knew it wasn't the process um I couldn't understand it either I didn't even think anything of it um gets to the day of surgery oh, your blood pressure's still quite high we're, we're gonna have to speak to the anaesthetist gets on the anaesthetist table and my blood pressure was insane it was like 200 over 160 um which for anybody that is not familiar with blood pressure you know it's it's a quite a number um and they just kind of brushed off a little bit they were just kind of like um oh you know it might be um you're just nervous or anxious or you you just need to chill a little bit maybe go and see a gp if you're worried and stuff um and I was really 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 angry that they cancelled my tonsil tonsillectomy um because I was suffering so badly and it was affecting college work and I took time off from college and I took time off from work and my dad dragged me to the doctors he was like there's obviously something up because no one has a blood pressure like that um and he was right so my GP did bloods and two days later I was in the royal for a week-long stay um, and in that time, they did every test under the sun, including a biopsy. And I didn't find out what was wrong with me for months. So I was 18 at this point because um, they had to do multiple biopsies. And um, when it actually got down to it, it was probably about three months after that initial kind of meeting with the renal team at the Royal. They actually found out what was up and they just kind of said, well, your kidneys function about 28%. We think you have this disease called IgA nephropathy, but it's kind of inconclusive from the samples, but that's what we're kind of going with. That's our best idea um, from what we have seen. Um, and you'll probably need 50% uh, need in a transplant in the next five to 10 years. And I was gobsmacked. I was absolutely gobsmacked because up until that point, I'd been kept in the dark, really. Um, all that was said to me was, oh, there's something wrong with your kidneys. We're not quite sure what it is. And that was it. And that was the line given to me for three months. So I thought, oh, I've had an infection somewhere along the line, you know, maybe a bit of scarring, might be like slightly reduced function. I did not expect the bombshell that was kind of thrown at me when I went in that day to the, to the um, consultant's office. And... I was just kind of, yeah, all the way home, I was just kind of gobsmacked. And I was like, might need a transplant. I was like, no, I won't need a transplant, be fine. Um, but yeah, so that was kind of where the whole thing started for me. And I was very much in denial. Like I was very much in denial for, for a while. And even though I was, it was, yeah, I didn't deal with it very well. Um it was a bit a case of kind of being really angry. I kind of thought about my life in the future. I didn't know it was going to, I didn't know anything about it really. Um, and I could see it playing out and I wasn't going to be able to travel properly. And, you know, how is this going to affect me? And I, I knew nothing. Like I actually knew nothing. And I walked out that day, not really knowing much more than when I went in through the front door, um, except that now I had a diagnosis um, so it's slightly relieving that I did have a diagnosis, but at the same time, I didn't have a clue. I honestly didn't have a clue what was in store. 
it's hard when you hear that news as well and they come out with the line you're gonna need a transplant in however long it sounds very similar to mine same condition the same uh process going in with biopsies and just thinking or knowing there's something wrong with your kidneys we're not quite sure what i was telling myself that it was just going to be a water infection dr google said it's not a water infection it's ij nephropathy but then when you are told you're going to need a transplant in five you said five to ten years yeah 50 percent chance of five to ten years yeah yeah mine was 10 the initial one but just before that it was um you'll probably be able to stay stable with the medication we're giving you for a number of years yeah and suddenly it was 10 a few months after five one six months now yeah Absolutely. Did it go that quick for you? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So that was when I was 18 and by 19, they talked about activating me on the transplant list and by 20, I was getting ready for a transplant. Um, So yeah, it absolutely plummeted. And much like you, we were probably on the same medication, Ramapril or some sort of ACE inhibitor, um, which for people that are listening that don't know, it's proven to slow down the progression of things like IgA nephropathy, um, which is a really common type of glomular nephritis. It's just scarring of the kidneys. And um, and there is a good prognosis for it, but it seems like after you get to a certain point, you're kind of, in quote marks, too far gone um, to kind of save it. So yeah, absolutely. The same as you, just deteriorated really quickly. Um, and I remember over over three months I dropped from 16% to six um and it was just yeah it was constantly in and out in and out of the hospital and the doctors and so at that point when you got down to six did you have to go on dialysis from then so the the plan was for me to have a preemptive transplant so a transplant before I hit dialysis from my dad um and it was all lined up and it was going to be perfect I was going to have the transplant in the September on the 21st and not need dialysis two weeks before I goes into clinic or three weeks before I went into clinic and my potassium was quite high um and obviously high potassium can be deadly you can have heart attacks and it can be really really bad um so they they started me on dialysis through um an emergency neckline um so i i didn't get away with it i had to do three weeks worth of dialysis before my preemptive transplant but it didn't matter anyway because the transplant wasn't successful we'll we'll come on to that now if that's all right so your dad donated you were 20 how long did it last (laughs) um so I went down to theatre at 1pm on the 21st of September um, and at three in the morning I was hemorrhaging. Um, my potassium was 7.5. That's high for anyone who isn't aware. <laughs> that's like, that's like, yeah, it's, I've never beaten it, I don't think. I've never beaten that high score of potassium. Um, so they stuck me on dialysis as soon as it had come down to a sensible level they rushed me to theater to fix the bleed um they were happy i came back and from that point something had gone wrong and i was in the most phenomenal pain i it's indescribable like when we talk about the pain scale for any patient it goes from one to ten one is like 
oh, I've just bumped my shoulder into the door. It doesn't really hurt. It was just stupid. Um, five is like, oh, God, I've just stood on a plug with some Lego on top of it. And then 10 is the most unbearable pain. For me, 10 is you would rather someone put you out your misery than carry on with the pain. That's how I describe a pain 10. And it was. It was a solid 10 for about 15 hours. Um, and they found a clot. They found a clot in the kidney. And they said to me, clots like this on we don't often save it it's going to have to be an exploratory surgery you might lose the transplant but I was too unstable to go to theatre had to dialyze so they I was left in that pain and no pain medication they gave me was even close to touching it um and I remember begging them and begging them and begging them for more pain relief and there was just nothing else Um, and I just wanted it out or I wanted to just kind of give up the ghost. Um, and I went down to theatre and I thought in my, even in my head, I was like, they'll just, they'll fix it. It's fine. I didn't even consider losing the transplant. Um, not at all. And when I woke up, the anaesthetist came over and even in my drugged up anaesthetized kind of weary state, I remember him saying, we took the kidney out. And again, that same gobsmacked feeling. Like I had no emotion at this point because I just couldn't comprehend it. I was like, what, what, what do you mean? You've taken out the kidney. It was like there was a clot in it. It was it was destroyed. It was broken. Um, and I just kept going back to the surgeon after the first, after the transplant and him going, it's an amazing kidney. It's going to last you 22, 25 years. You know, it's phenomenal. It's incredible. Um, just being generally really excited. And then now this man was coming up to me and going, actually, no, it's, it's in the waste disposal bin. Um, we're really sorry. And then for anybody that's ever had, it was I don't want this to sound ridiculous, but I mourned the loss of that transplant because I mourned those 22 years. I mourned those 30 years that I was going to have from that transplant. And I, my dad was devastated, absolutely devastated. And I remember walking into the lobby of the Royal because you still have to recover. You know, you've just had major surgery. I had yeah. three major surgeries and you still have to recover. And I had a bag of drugs and I was in incredible pain. And I had nothing to show for it. I had nothing. And I had a dialysis slot for two days later. And that was my first transplant. It was a nightmare. It was an actual nightmare. And it took me years to be able to talk about it. How do you pick yourself up from that point when you've, as you said, you've been promised or not promised, but you've, you're building up this next 20, 30 years. And then pretty much instantly after it's gone, how do you, you and your dad pick yourself up? I don't even know if, I've, if I'm at that point still. Sometimes, like, it's, I think because now I've got a tra- successful transplant, it's a little bit easier, but I was so devastated. I, I, I was literally, like, mourning the loss. I don't know what it's like to lose a child. I honestly don't. But I mourned it like I'd lost something so very dear to me. And my, and going into dialysis, was weird because I'd done three weeks so I had a slot and I got familiar with some of the people there as you would because you go in you know three times a week where why why are you here you you're supposed to have a transplant and then you have to explain to every single person you see why you're there again 
and what happened and for most people they understand and they go do you know what that is horrific I think the more devastating thing was the thing that the pain that I went through as well as losing the transplant like I when I think about the agony I was in it sometimes I can't even comprehend it it was in it was insane and then obviously then losing the transplant and seeing my dad like seeing my dad afterwards was heartbreaking because he just he doesn't it's no one's fault it was an act of god it was one percent out of transplants happen it happens to but you know i was 20 i was fit i was healthy i was a climber i ran i you know i worked outside i had no other comorbidities i'd looked after myself and yet this just happens and i just couldn't i couldn't understand it and it was really really difficult um but i think that for me getting involved in the kidney stuff i got involved in the volunteering the fundraising the shared care speaking to other patients gave me a focus um it gave me something to work towards it kind of things can always be worse that is kind of what I try to repeat to myself. Whatever position you're in, if you're alive, things can usually always be worse. Um, and I, it took me a while, but I did pick myself back up. Um, I dealt with it a lot better than I dealt with dealing with my diagnosis. I think because I was older and I was a little bit more experienced um, and a little bit more mature. And yeah, I, I was had to be strong for the people around me as well because this doesn't just affect you it affects everybody that you're in contact with and that you know and that look after you everyone else goes through it at the same time as as you are indirectly yeah through knowing you see seeing you go through it can't be easy for those around you no absolutely not and after that point things didn't get much better um i had a really tricky dialysis um, my dialysis failed on multiple occasions. I spent over 250 days in hospital over a year. Um, you know, at one point there was no dialysis that was working. Um, and, you know, I was, I ended up being tubed. I ended up being in ITU um, with seizures and blood pressure that just was trying to kill me. Um, and it didn't, it didn't look good for a while. And there was points in my life where I was so anemic um, for any kidney patient I had a hemoglobin of 42 um, so the normal range for a woman is between 120 and 135 anything below 80 they give you a blood transfusion um, and anything below 60 they call it critical so I was at 42 um, and I said you know if I get below 40 I'll accept a blood transfusion but obviously that increases the antibodies and less likely you get a transplant is the easiest way to describe it so I was holding out and I had to use a wheelchair I couldn't stand up you know I couldn't walk up the stairs without help my dad had to push me up the stairs or carry me up the stairs I couldn't brush my teeth I couldn't do anything I was just resigned to a wheelchair um just from the anemia just from the anemia just because I couldn't perfuse my muscles my organs well enough and it did come back up and it and it was fine um but there were some real real low points um but you just keep going and you can't deal with things as they happen like mentally you can't deal with things because that means you'll have to stop 
and that's when you get caught up in it all you have to just keep moving forward and eventually go right I will deal with this at some point but I can't do it now because I have to just keep going um and not I don't want to like make this sound like it's like kidney disease for is such an individual thing like from person to person some people have a really easy transition to dialysis and transplant and or maybe even never have to dialyze um and then other people are just the opposite end of the spectrum and then you've got everybody in between so it's you can't this is why patients really struggle there is not one size fits all with with anything related to your kidneys just from what you've been saying there we're we said we were similar going up to the transplant, but then from the first transplant surgery, it's completely opposite. Yeah, absolutely. Listening, listening to other people telling their stories on here, I've realised how straightforward mine was. <laughs> and yeah, absolutely. And do you know what? I wouldn't wish it on anybody. I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but at the same time, I say this and people think I'm weird, but I would not change it. I honestly wouldn't change it because it's made me who I am. It's made me appreciate like what I've got now. It opened my eyes to what I did and didn't want from life. And that life is too short. Like, and that's what changed. That's what the the um, switch that kind of flipped from dealing with my diagnosis to dealing with the failure of my second transplant and everything surpassing that was, you know, just that mindset that mindset had to change because woe is me does not get you anywhere like the world is ending my life is terrible doesn't get you anywhere and everybody goes through it I kind of think you have to you have to hit that low um and then realize actually do you know what right I need to sort my life out now and people do that in different ways and for me um most of it was getting involved in the in the patient stuff and and thinking about what I was going to do when I eventually got my life back Let's go on to your second transplant, which did come. <laughs> Finally. Eventually. <laughs> how how long were you on dialysis for between the first and the second? I think I was on for about a year. Um, it felt very much longer, but it was about a year. Um, so I used to dialyze in hospital on a home dialysis machine five days a week. So it used to take me an hour and a bit in rush hour traffic into Liverpool I do my own dialysis, everything myself for three hours, two to three hours. And then I would wait for transport for 90 minutes sometimes. And then I would get an hour taxi home. And that was my life five days a week. I thought of it like a working job. It was like going to work. I'd leave the house at six in the morning and I'd get back for about 2 p.m. Um, and that was my job was was staying alive. Um, and I did that for, I did that particular dialysis for eight months. And then I before that messed around with PD which was a complete and utter disaster for me um but yeah so I settled on that that routine that home dialysis the next stage machine um for that eight months and I was really settled on it but I was too anemic to be put on the list I wasn't on the transplant list for months I didn't make it onto the transplant list for more than two weeks um so I was in the pooled pair scheme and for anybody that doesn't know the pooled pair scheme is essentially a bathtub hypothetically of patients that and their family want to donate to them or their friends want to donate to them but they're not a match um so they go into this big pool um and then a really clever computer algorithm pairs them all together um and you get chains of of donation um in this country the biggest chain is kind of like three sets of couples 
Um, so my mum, my stepmom wanted to donate to me, but she wasn't a match. Um, I could have accepted that kidney. Um, and I, I nearly had to because I was deteriorating so rapidly. Um, but it wasn't a good match and that comes with its own problems. Um, but I managed to hold out for a match in the pooled pair scheme. Um, I had one failed match and one successful. And the the second one, I didn't tell anybody about. I told the staff that knew me and I told a select number of family members. I didn't post it anywhere. I wasn't really posting a lot about my illness on social media anyway, because nobody wants to see that. I definitely didn't want a record of it <laughs> um, after my transplant and stuff. I just, I'd tell people, I had a transplant. I lost a transplant. I had a transplant. It it succeeded. Um, So, yeah, so the date came and I didn't find out that it was fully go ahead until two in the morning in the hospital. So I was in the night before, obviously, and I was wandering around the hospital like I usually do when I can't sleep. I was up and down the corridors and up and down the stairs and I'd just go out to the the lobby and just chat to the security guards and and I bumped into my surgeon he was like what are you doing up go to bed (laughs) he was like it's going ahead everything's all right I was like okay um so yeah so and I nearly lost that transplant again I had a massive hemorrhage was that something you were scared about from the start I was scared about the pain. I was scared about being in the same amount of pain as I was in last time. And we had extensive chats with the anaesthetist about it. Um, And he was a lovely man. Um, And they switched all my pain medication. because I'm quite resistant to quite a lot of it now, as you can imagine. Um, And I come back from surgery and I felt great after surgery. I like there's photos of me and I look like I've just gone for you know, we walk around the block and needed to lie down. Um, I, I looked good. I felt good, even though I was a bit tired. And then the next day I just was like, something's not right. I feel terrible. Something's really not right. And the blood pressure tanked and I was in horrendous pain. I was again, the same pain, but I could control it this time. Like I, it was horrendous. It was still a 10. I was still begging for more pain relief, but I knew that eventually it would end. And I remember the anaesthetist, they took me down to scan and they found this massive bleed from the kidney. Um, I had four transfusions. I had four pints of blood. And I remember the anaesthetist coming to me before taking me to theatre. and was like, the odds aren't good. You know, you, you might not survive this one. Um, and at that point, you just don't care. You're in so much pain that you you don't care. You don't take anything in. You're just like, just do whatever you needed to do. Um, I had my dad by me this time, so he got to see the whole drama. My stepmom was in the ward, so the roles had been switched. You know, last time she looked after me for my first transplant and she had to witness it, whereas this time it switched and my dad had to endure it instead. Um, And my mum and my grandma as well. And yeah, it it was horrendous. But this time, rather than 16 hours, it was only a few hours. And they took me down to theatre and I did wake up and I woke up in ITU and I was in ITU for five or six days. And um, I don't remember any of it. I remember falling asleep, holding like a glass of water in my hand. People would have to, I'd fall asleep mid conversation. I I remember the consultant coming in um, and I remember the first sentence and then I must have just fallen asleep and yeah. things like that. I would just, 
<laughs> it was a really strange time. Like most of the time I was just asleep. Um, but yeah, and the kidney went to sleep, but it did wake up. And I think that I only have 28% function now. So I've got the same function now as I did when I was diagnosed. Um, and I think that's probably why, because it got such a savage introduction to life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like, oh, welcome to Tara's body. You know, here's your roller coaster ride. Um, but it did, it made it through and it's it's still going now and it hasn't really changed. You know, it's two year anniversary this week of my transplant. Congratulations. Um, thank you so much. I can't believe we've made it this far. <laughs> um, but yeah, and it's not something that I wouldn't, I didn't think I'd see the second anniversary of this one actually. Um, but yeah, so it nearly went pear shaped again and I just couldn't believe it. I'm like, what are the odds? <laughs> what are the actual odds? Um, but it was rescued and it was saved. And, and when I went home, I went home with my proud little kidney rather than just a bag of drugs and a really broken heart. Um, so and then recovery was so easy for me. I was in hospital for two and a half weeks. So there was like people coming in, having transplants and going home. And I was still there. Like, there was a woman opposite me and she was like 68 and she had a transplant. She walked out the door with a function of 73% five days after her transplant. And I'm still sat there like, is it my turn now? <laughs> um, and eventually I got out the door and... I remember going for my first climb, um, surgeon permission granted, about five weeks after my transplant. As I was fine, I literally yeah. it was literally like nothing had happened. It was great. It must have been such a relief when you did get out of the hospital and it was still working. Did you know um, who the other person in your paired scheme was? No, so it's completely anonymous. It's completely anonymous, and it stops things like bribery and all that kind of rubbish and also some people just don't want to know um I know that it was a guy it was a man's kidney which is always better um because it's bigger especially when you're mm -hmm. a female I know it was a man's kidney and it was a 50% match which is good um and yeah so he I got his kidney and my step it was a three person chain so it was a big chain so there's always a they're very volatile. They can collapse. If someone gets a cold on the day of surgery, it's cancelled. You know, if someone's not very well, it's cancelled. If there's not a theatre available, it's cancelled. Um, so that's why I didn't tell anybody. Uh, that's why I didn't believe it was going to happen until I was on the operating table with my four hairnets on when I had dreadlocks. Um, so, yeah. And so I have no idea who it was. I sent him a letter. I wrote to him to thank him. He never replied and that's absolutely fine. Um, but I just wanted him to know that I was going to use it. I was going to look after it. And he'd done an incredible, incredible thing. And whoever he was trying to, whoever his pair was, um, they got a kidney as well. Everybody in the chain had a successful transplant. That, that's exactly how you want it to go. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the climbing that you managed to do five months Five, five, it was five weeks after your transplant. Which sports or activities were you doing before? And how did did you manage to get close to your first transplant? And from what you've said, I'm guessing you maybe didn't get close to doing any sort of sports between your first and second. Yeah, so I was a, I started climbing when I was eight years old. So, you know, that's like a really, really long time ago now. Um, 
what, 16 years or something like that. Um, and I climbed consecutively for a lot of years and then I got injured and it was more sporadic. And when I went to uni, I got really back into it and started heading into the mountains and, um, and stuff like that. And I don't think I noticed too much with my kidney, my native kidneys deteriorating. Um, and I was still trying to do as much as I possibly could. And I felt okay. Like I did. I felt okay. Even at 6%, like I knew something was wrong. I think when you're a patient, you become very in touch with your body and how it feels and what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. Um, and I knew, you know, I felt like the, the tank was running on empty. Um, and then, yeah, between the first and second, I think I went climbing a handful of times but I couldn't stand up without wanting to pass out most of the time um and it was really hard I'd maybe I'd pay to go but I'd more pay to go for the social aspect of it um because I'd go with my friends and I'd maybe do a couple of climbs um and just sit and chat for the rest of it and that was enough that was enough for me I couldn't really do anything else I could bear like for periods of it you know I couldn't even walk properly um so climbing and and being out in the hills was my main sport. That's what I'd always kind of done um, with breaks in between. Uh, when I was younger, um, you know, I wanted to be a, an Olympic swimmer and then realised that actually that's really hard work. <laughs> and I wasn't very good <laughs> at swimming either. Um, but yeah, the climbing really, and it will always be my sport. It's something that stayed with me forever. Um and then after this transplant, that was it. I was off like a rocket. Um, you know, I was climbing again. I spent four months in Spain climbing um, with my partner, Chris. Um, I was back in the hills. I could walk up hills. I remember one time taking my peritoneal dialysis to Wales with me to visit some friends because um, I was on the, the bags um which for anybody that has no idea what I'm talking about you put bags into your stomach and you drain it out again and that's your dialysis and it's in quote marks portable but you know you take four bags a day and they each weigh two kilos so it's not really portable um but I'd, I'd gone up to Wales and my friends were like oh should we go for a little walk and we'll go up up this little tiny hill like not a mountain it was like you know maybe a 30 minute walk and I remember feeling like I was actually gonna die I thought this is it this is it for me I can't do this anymore and I'd never felt so rough and there's a photo of me and I look like I'd been hit with a baseball bat multiple times in the face um and then now with my transplant I run up hills do you know it's just it's insane um the difference that a measly 28 percent kidney function can make it's much better than what you're on before. I think when you are lower down, you'll notice that big jump. Six to 28 is is a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Someone fully healthy uh, maybe would notice the drop from maximum down to 28, mm-hmm. but you've gone from six up to 28, yeah. so you're going to feel a lot, a lot better on that. Yeah, absolutely. And I always think to myself, I'm like, I wonder what it's like to have 100% kidney function. Like, what would I feel like? Would I feel like nuclear? um you know i'd be like a superhero um because but for the you know the past you know 
several years, you know, six, seven years, this is all I've, all I've, this is the best I've ever had it. Um, obviously I had good kidney function previous to that, but there's no comparison really. Um, so compared to how I felt when I was on dialysis, which was awful, I feel superhuman. Um, it's insane. And I will never, ever let it stop me 28% or not. Like I'm going to go out and do it. And, you know, it's, I don't worry about it. I know that people get really worried about, traveling and getting ill and and the drugs they take and stuff but you can't control those things especially like the medication you take I take a truckload um and some of them you know have some scary side effects um because you've got less of an immune system so things like cancer and stuff like that can be more prevalent um but you can't control that you you can't control the ifs buts whys and whens um so you may as well just keep plowing forward and yeah, it's it's great. It's unbelievable. It's it's really unbelievable. So with the climbing, how did you originally get into that? And did it start indoors? Yeah. So <laughs> it started at Alton Towers when I was about seven. Um, there was one of those temporary towers that you <laughs> see. And I whizzed up it and I loved it. And it was great. And my dad was there and he booked me in for climbing sessions for Kids Club. And I went every Saturday to Kids Club um and it was it was great I loved it I loved climbing it's what I lived for and I tried the competitions and it wasn't for me you know I'm quite easygoing and stuff like that and um and it was quite stressful so it was very much my own personal thing um when I was injured um I then took up ice skating I did that for a few years um 6am 5am on a Saturday morning sometimes in the week as well um again very leisurely um and yeah so the the climbing started indoors and I literally climbed indoors I'd never been outside until I went to uni and that's how I met Chris like he we were just friends and he took me out climbing and he showed me how to climb outside and uh, we kind of worked in the same place and stuff um lived completely different lives um lived different lives for for four three four years um and then only got together you know a couple of years ago and stuff um but yeah so I'd you know I only started climbing outside five years ago ish um it's completely different I I love indoors I love outdoors it's it's brilliant um it's a feeling that you don't get from many other things at all on the on the cliffs when you are outside do you enjoy the risk and the adrenaline rush that you get from it oh yeah it's scary (laughs) (laughs) it depends what you're doing as well like there's lots of different climbing outside the two main like the three main ones are bouldering so no ropes um just a mat underneath you uh sport climbing where you've got metal clips um metal bolts in the wall that are drilled into the rock and you put clips into them and clip your rope in um, so the the bolts are in there and then you've got trad climbing where you have to place your own protection as you climb um, trad climbing is terrifying it's truly truly terrifying um, <laughs> because you know you're placing your own gear and you've just got to trust the fact that if you fall that that gear is going to take your weight it's not going to pop out and you're not going to hit the deck uh, sport climbing particularly in like Europe you get some cracking spaces between the bolts so you can take some serious falls climbing um, and you know you get to a clip 
and your arms shaking and you're tired and you've got to grab the rope and you've got to put it through that clip. And there's been times where I've had mouthfuls of rope pulling up the rope and it's been so close to falling off. And you're looking at like, you know, a 10, eight, 10 meter fall and the sweat is pouring off you and the <laughs> adrenaline's going and like, you just can't describe it. And then bouldering, although it's low and there's a mat underneath you, if you're doing some really sketchy moves, you play out in your brain. You're like, oh my God, I'm going to break a foot. I'm going to break a limb. I'm going to smash my head across a rock. Um, and it's a very big mental game. Um, and, you know, getting past that mental side of it then makes you an incredible climber. Um, but most climbers are limited by their own fear. Um, and that's what I love about it. It's about pushing yourself mentally. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. As well as physically, you don't have to do a hard climb to feel terrified, to feel absolutely strict with fear. <laughs> <laughs> so climbing, you also do mountaineering yeah uh we had a bit of a chat beforehand for those who might not be aware what is the difference between mountaineering and climbing and do they help each other in a way yeah so for me mountaineering would describe being out in the mountains that might be scrambling so easy climbing um like when you see really jagged um cliffs on mountains and stuff not all of that requires a rope it might just require um some competent low level climbing um and you know just being out in the hills navigating um then you obviously got your winter mountaineering and that might be just trudging through the snow or it might be using an axe to walk with or it might be um, using axes to climb with um so it covers quite a breadth of it and then obviously for me climbing means you're scaling it vertically 
um and usually you've probably got a rope with you um or your boulder in so yeah that's the kind of difference i think for most people how most people would describe it um being out in the hills is just it's great you know and it doesn't have to be a big glorious day out it can just be you know i'm just gonna wander up this really easy hill for the day and have a picnic at the top and come back down or it might be an absolute trek it might be an absolute mission you might be doing trying to cover a really big distance with lots of elevation gain particularly in places like north wales where you can make really long routes like the snowden horseshoe and and stuff like that um but yeah it's just about you know getting out into the mountains and and loving it really it must be relaxing because just even being outside in some fields is good for clearing your head but when you're that far presumably away from people unless everyone's had the same idea uh <laughs> we're in lockdown let's go to let's go and climb a mountain yeah absolutely and you find a lot of that but obviously you know with lockdown now you can't travel that far so people can't get out as much um so you know we've not been in the hills for for a long time um like we were in scotland um, and then when lockdown came, we had to move um, because there was no work anymore. But yeah, so, but at the start, you there's a massive increase um, in numbers and you've got to be careful as well. You know, if you're going out into the hills during lockdown, if it's local to you, um, you know, your walking distance and stuff, you've still got to be really careful because anything can happen. And, you know, especially if you're inexperienced and you're taking the dog out and it's, you know, eight feet of snow and it's a wind chill of you know minus 15 that's a really silly idea because then if you get stuck you're putting pressure on other services and stuff um but yeah the the it's nice to see people getting out and stuff but there are still a lot of places that are secluded like if you think about snowden as a massive tourist trap um you know sometimes you've got people queuing for the summit um but then you go around the corner to the glitters or um like Molelio or something like that and there's just no one there um it's you know it's completely secluded so there's always secluded spots um wherever you wherever you are you see those pictures of snowden i think it was last march april and you go oh no (laughs) why why have you all done that absolutely and the cars queuing up the road to snowden penny pass it's just it's a nightmare um and people don't think like i've been out before in in the snow and you see photos of people walking their dogs in this knee deep snow in their Nike trainers and their, you know, just about waterproof jacket. And you just, your heart breaks a little bit. Um, but yeah, the mountains should be for everybody. If you've got the common sense to get yourself back up and down. (laughs) When you're out for a day, what would you take on a typical trip? Um, in the summer, if the weather's good, um, and I've, you know, I check the Met Office and check the the local weather um, services and stuff, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be a good day. I'd take my first aid kit. I'd take some sort of group shelter um, just in case it really hit the fan. You always want to prepare for what might happen. Um, you know, I'd take my waterproofs, even if, you know, there was not a cloud in the sky, I would take my waterproofs. Um, snacks, obviously um water lots of it if it's going to be really hot sunscreen things like that um hat gloves obviously not as necessary in the summer but it can change really fast and especially like temperatures on the summit and stuff 
you know, it might be really warm and stuff at, um, at sea level. And then you get a thousand meters up and suddenly actually that wind's really, really cold. Yeah. You're a t-shirt and shorts and you're like, oh dear. Um, and have a contingency plan. Always leave a flight plan as well. You know, if you're going out, you're letting people know where you're going. You take your phone. If you've got um, like a personal GPS, um, then take that too. And just be prepared. Like there's lots of kit lists online and stuff that are really helpful too. And lots of articles on the BMC about staying safe in the mountains. And then if it's winter, you basically pack, pack everything in the kitchen sink. Um, <laughs> you know, multiple pairs of gloves, you know, you're taking your crampons and your axes and you just never know what conditions are going to be like. You've taken 17 coats and four jackets and a, three hats and everything. Um, especially for me, cause I get really cold. Um, and just always, always thinking about what could go wrong um, is is the best way to do it. Is is this a good idea? If it's not, I probably shouldn't do it. Absolutely. And do you think you've got better at preparing for all eventualities since you've became an outdoor instructor? Yeah. So definitely, and it makes you think of risk in a different way as well. Um, so I, I've done my mountain leader training. Um, I had my assessment planned, but obviously Rona um I've done my rock climbing instructor assessment so I can take groups climbing outside um and you do everything you do you go and double and you triple check it and you quadruple check it and only when you're a kid you don't you don't care you risk is not a thing like you know skipping quick draws um or like just speeding up walls and you know just having a quick glance that you're not and not even just you don't you're a kid risk isn't a thing and then as an adult it's completely the opposite you check you're not 16 times even though you've been doing it every day of your life for the last 16 years you check your belay partners um belay device 16 times because you're not quite sure if they've done that gate up and you know everything you double check and you triple check especially once you become an instructor because it's like ingrained in your brain that people are generally like they will you just miss things you do miss things and that's how accident happen um so yeah definitely you you and that's where the fear comes in that's why people tend to like not climb as hard because that perception of risk gets bigger yeah that that makes sense so what what's sort of the the greatest height you've climbed or mountain you've climbed I think my tallest mountain was um, in Jordan um, in the Middle East. So it was Jebel Rum. So that's the highest. It was the highest mountain. Um, it is the highest mountain in Jordan, um, I think, if I remember rightly. Um, and it's the highest thing I've ever been up. And I think it's about 2,000. It's over 2,000 meters, I think would have to check that um and it's a lot of scrambling so it's not just a simple walk up and then you have to abseil down the the quick ways to abseil down um and the problem with the rock in jordan is it's sandstone so it crumbles so you can grab onto something it will disintegrate in your hand and it's terrifying i have never been so scared not on that hill particularly um but climbing in jordan 
was truly, truly character building in every aspect of the world. <laughs> like, you know, one thing you'd grab onto and be fine, the next person grabs onto it and it falls off. Um, so you have to be so careful. You have to go with a serious knowledge of the rock and the conditions to be able to climb on it. Because you could set up an abseil, so coming down the mountain on a bit of rope, that in the UK would hold a forklift truck you could go to Jordan and do the same abseil on the sandstone and it would disintegrate. And, you know, climbers have died over there from from rock that crumbles and it weighs heavy on your mind. Um, but, yeah, you've just got to go with your wits about you. So Jebel Rum, um, I've just Googled just so that I don't sound like a complete idiot, is 1,734 metres above sea level. So it's uh snowden and a half it's quite high then uh yeah it's really good actually it's a beautiful beautiful uh mountain um and it comes from it come best place to start it is in wadi rum um yeah it's it's really beautiful it was i think it was the highest mountain but then they moved the border um so it's no longer anymore the highest mountain in Jordan, something like that. Um, but yeah, it's fantastic. Um, I've been up Terminillo in Italy. I think that might be taller, to be honest, but you start from quite a high elevation already. So you don't climb the full height yeah. of it. You only end up climbing about 700 meters. Um, I've been to the top of Machu Picchu in Peru. Um, so that's quite high. That's like three and a half four and a half thousand meters um and you feel the altitude there but unfortunately i couldn't climb it i couldn't walk up it i was i was ill at the time so i got a minibus up there <laughs> um definitely cheating um but yeah i still got up there eventually by wheels um but in terms of actually rock climbing i think my biggest climb was um in in spain blue line uh, which is a really really easy climb me and Chris did it together and we didn't use ropes. We had a rope between us, but we weren't climbing the pitches as you would usually climb. Um, so basically don't fall off. Um, <laughs> but it is, it is quite an easy climb um, and it's th- over 300 meters of climbing. So it really, really good fun. And we did it at night and it was awesome. Um, it was brilliant. Behind you on that, is it just open space to fall into? Yeah. So we've done it. I think we we did it at night and I think we did it in the day as well. Um, and the exposure is incredible. Like you'll be just on this ledge and we've just got a rope between us and you look down and you're like, Oh, that's going to really, really hurt if I fall off right now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, multi-pitch climbing um, where you have to do it in segments because it's so tall is, is nothing. It, it's incredible. It's like a proper journey. And that's what I like. That's why I like long challenges because you get that sense of adventure um it's like you're going somewhere you're going on a journey it's going to take a while to get there it's it's going to be a long achievement and you're probably going to have lots of type two fun where you wish you weren't there but at the end of it you're like oh god man that's so cool i'd so do that again (laughs) we we spoke about lockdown a little bit earlier on we alluded to it with the scenes at snowden uh you run as well. Has that been useful, especially in the last year? So I only started running in lockdown part one. Uh, so you weren't, you weren't allowed to climb. 
you're only allowed an hour of exercise a day. And I obviously we were in the shielding category and I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? What am I, I want to eat cake. Um, I want to, I need to move. I can't just sit in. And Chris, my partner, he's a good runner and he's done ultras in the past and he would start to run again. I was like, maybe I should take up this running thing. The most I'd ever done was like three weeks of couch to 5k post-transplant, basically just to get me moving. And I've always deemed running as the worst sport on the planet because, well, it's hard. It's hard work. Um, and I was like, right, no, I'm going to I'm gonna give this running a go. Yeah, I'm going to do it. So I remember my first run was 1.8k. And it took me about 25 minutes. I'm pretty sure you can walk it in that. Um, we did live in quite a hilly area. I, well, I'm going to I'm gonna throw that out there. You know, it was quite a hilly area. But it was still 1.8k and it took me a really, really long time. And I remember getting back and being like, that wasn't fun. And I was like, no, I'm going to stick with it because you can't just be good at running. You, you can't, like, unless you've got like a background in really heavy cardiovascular sport, like, I don't know, cycling and stuff, you can't just be good at running. So I was like, right, I'm going to do this. I was like, I've got no choice because I've got nothing else to do. Um, so three days a week, I dragged myself out of that house. I dragged, I hated it. I hated every second of it. And 1.8K turned into 2.6K, which turned into 4K. And then I did my first 5K. My first 5K took me 45 minutes. Yeah, it did. It did. And I was so proud of myself. I was so proud of myself. I didn't know anything about pace at that point. I didn't know what people did 5K in. I just knew that I'd run 5K. And I was like, I am a ninja. I am incredible. <laughs> Usain Bolt, like, look at me. I can run 5K. Um, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to keep going. I was like, I'm going to set myself a goal. I'm going to set myself a lockdown goal of running 20k before the end of lockdown or when lockdown ended and you were allowed to go a bit further I was gonna I was gonna run 20k and in my head I was like no you're not (laughs) that's a stupid idea but no I did and I dragged myself out three times a week and three times a week turned to four times a week and my 5k went from 43 minutes 23 minutes to not 23 minutes to 33 minutes to sub 30 minutes and then I ran my first 10k and I was like oh my god I'm a wizard um and I'd never felt so proud of myself and it was like it was so hard work but I'd get out rain or shine and I would bloody do it and it didn't matter how long it took me I'd walk bits I'd run bits I'd walk bits I'd run bits and eventually the running became to the point where I was enjoying it because I was fit enough to enjoy it. And in between that is me crying and sobbing and um, I can't do this. God, I'm so rubbish. Because Chris would come out and run with me and I would be running like nine, eight minute kilometers. Like that's not really running. It's like shuffling. And he can quite easily run five minute kilometers, four minute, four and a half minute kilometers. And he would just be like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how fast you go. You're out. And I'm like, but I'm so rubbish. <laughs> um, but you can't just be good at running. And he would tell me that over and over again. I'm like, but I want to be good. <laughs> um, so I put the effort in and I kept going. And four times a week turned into five times a week. And um, 
and I did my first half marathon at the end of lockdown when you could when you could travel um and when you were free to move about um my parents met me at the end of my half marathon and I ran it um and I remember at the end of it I was like yeah boy that was great (laughs) (laughs) I was like oh yeah I'm gonna eat so much pizza (laughs) it's not even gonna be funny um and I was like I got home and I booked my first ultra I was like yeah I could do more than this and I don't want to do a marathon because with a marathon everyone's like oh what time are you in for or how fast are you going to run it or you know which marathon are you going to do oh, I've done that marathon I did it in this blah 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 and I'm like no nah, I don't want that I am not a fast runner I'm still not a fast runner I was like I'm going to do an ultra instead because that's just about eating really really well like can you eat for 55 kilometers and not throw up yes I can give this a go um I googled that when I saw you were going to do it it's a long way yeah it is quite a long way and there's on the hills yeah ultras are massively variant you know you can get um as long as it's over a marathon it's an ultra so you could do 27 miles and it's an ultra even though a marathon's only 26.2 um so this is the my first one's 33 and a bit miles i think um and it's not too much there's not too many hills in it um the second one is 55k so about the same um, in miles and is about Snowden and a bit worth of elevation gain so it's quite a lot um but yeah so I I can go out and run you know 25k just on an afternoon like no problem um I you know my I'm still not a fast runner I will never be a fast runner um it's just not me like my half marathon time quite comfortably is 210 um two hours and 10 minutes and I know that I can run faster than that, but I like plodding. I like being able to breathe. I like eating snacks and I like listening to my podcasts. And that's what it's about for me. I'm not there to break any records. I love it. It clears my head. It's like a brain dump on the road. Um, and yeah, I've, I truly do love every second of it. And I had some injury time as well. Like I got a bit injured, um, I think just from increasing load even though I was trying to be really careful with it. Um, So I took some time off and getting back into it, I thought was hard because unlike most runners, like people that have run for 20 years, if you take a month off, you're probably not going to notice that much of a drop in your aerobic capacity, maybe some in your muscles. Um, You know, you will be a bit more tired and your legs will be feel a bit tighter. But with 20 years of backup fitness on you, you're not going to notice it or even 10 or even five years. Whereas me, you know, I've not even been running a year. So when I take, when I took two months off, pretty much, I noticed it. I yeah. noticed it hard. Um, it came back quickly, um, but it was, it was hard getting back into it. And I did want to just give it up. And I was like, I'm just back. I felt like I was back to the beginning and I wasn't at all. I wasn't running nine minute kilometers anymore. Um, so, and yeah, um, I have a coach now um just to give me a bit of variation and she's she's phenomenal her name's Carla um and she is like a machine that woman is a machine um she just ran 100k in eight hours wow um (laughs) she ran from Land's End to John O'Groats as well and she broke the Guinness World Book of Records for the fastest time on foot from one end of the country to the other. She is a legend and she inspires me so much. And I was like, yeah, I want this lady to coach me. 
because she's cool and she likes cake. Um, so yeah, so I'm loving it even more now because there's somebody else writing my sessions and it's just, it's different. It's nice. Um, Someone else there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Someone else for me to cry to and go, oh, this was awful. Don't ever make me do that again. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's it's fantastic. And I'm really looking forward to my first race and I really hope it goes ahead. And I'm not going for any particular time. I just want to run it well. I just want to run it comfortably. And I just want to eat a massive slice of cake at the end of it. <laughs> it shows your determination going from not running to doing the ultra marathons. And I've said it, I've noticed it, and a few other people who've been on here have said it before. Post-transplant, it does seem hard to get fit again. Did you notice that at the start? Yeah, I did. I I did and I didn't. I think I was out after my transplant and after I was kind of mobile, I was out every day because I've been sat on my arse basically for two years doing nothing watching all of my friends climb and mountaineer and and everything and I was like nope nope I'm I'm done with that I'm you know I'm done with sitting down this is this is my time I'm gonna use my 28% and I'm gonna use every percent of it um and so I did yeah I just it was hard in the beginning coming from nothing um but especially with the running I found it really tricky but it yeah it just took time it took patience it took patience and trust in the process even with the climbing like you know luckily I've got a lot of muscle memory when it comes to climbing I build up muscle really fast um so I got stronger I got stronger quick um but you do lose it quick as well. I didn't find it any different post-transplant getting fit again, but I don't think I was that... F- I'd been so unfit for so long that I hadn't had anything to compare it to. I just knew that I felt great now and terrible before. Yeah, I, I noticed I had a, a drop-off. At six months. It was not until six months after mine that I got back into cricket again. And I'm all right in the short distance, short, sharp bursts, and then a little bit of a rest. A short rest, I'm, this lockdown, uh, I've been in the garden, which is about, it's about the size of a cricket, about 20, 20, 22 yards long. And I can sprint up one end, walk back, sprint just in that short time, but maybe three, four seconds off and then sprint again. But the continuous running, I struggle to do that far. Yeah, I think it's conditioning as well, isn't it? Like, it's just getting your body used to that again. I mean, for me as well, like... Walking up the stairs was bloody hard work at the start. Um, And I remember the first hill that I walked up post-transplant, the first mountain, and I was like, whoa, I really, really need to work on this because I am so unfit. But then when I compare it to how I felt, I still felt way fitter. So, um, yeah, it's quite quite difficult. Um, But now... I've never been this fit in my life. I have never been able to run, ever. Not that I've tried, but I've never been this fit. Um, And I've never felt this healthy, and I've never ate this well, even with the cake. Um, Kidney disease, kidney failure, and transplant has... Yeah, this is why I would never take it back. 
you know I, I've learned so much about myself so much about my body so much about people in general and just the, the value the value of life and living it how you want to live it and not being miserable um, and if you want to go and do something just go and do it what's the worst that could happen I completely agree I think everything you've talked about today all the way through from your transplant at the start through all the sports that you do just shows the determination reflects that all the way through so the de- determination to bounce back from the first traumatic transplant and then the time you spent in ICU and not being able to walk or stand up, being pushed around the wheelchair and then determined again, now you're running ultramarathons. And then you're determined again to help other people. So you, we talked about camping at the start. Do you want to explain for people who are not in that area what it is and how you got involved with it yeah absolutely so i started off with the whole patient advocacy thing with shared care at the royal basically getting patients to do their own dialysis um to have them to get them to have a little bit more control of their life when you are a patient especially on dialysis you lose a lot of that control and then camkin came along and it was an idea set up by Salford uni um by a lady called christina and um, a gentleman called rob um and it was basically it started in Manchester. Um, so there's a Greater Manchester Kidney Information Network, which is a Facebook group and it's a Twitter and there's a website and it's about local patients being in a group. Um, and because I find with, you know, with bigger groups like um, that have got thousands and thousands of members, there's so much contrast in information. There's so much sometimes false information and it can be really overwhelming. If you've got a local group of patients that might all attend a similar hospital or have been to a similar hospital, um, it's a lot easier to get that information. And then they approached Liverpool Hospital um, with an idea to set up another group. So Camkin was born. So the Cheshire and Merseyside Kidney Information Network. Um, again we're a Facebook group you know we've been growing exponentially in the last few weeks especially over lockdown Um, there's just shy of 300 members doesn't sound a lot but it's a good number of people and we're still growing Um, and it's a direct line to the medics at the hospital I um, run the group I moderate the group I pass all the information I get directly from the medics to the people in the group so they get that information particularly at the minute about like vaccines and covid etc um it's a place for people to chat it's a place for people to talk it's a place for people to ask questions and tell me tell their problems and if they've got issues they can come to me and we can try and sort them we used to go out for coffee and cake when the world was normal um because everybody loves cake um and then i set up from that the um, healthy eating club with our dietitian Hillary, um, just to kind of, you know, get people out of those lockdown habits, getting eating a bit healthier and stuff. So Camkin has been phenomenal. Like it's kept me focused. Um, and it's, it only started when I had my transplant, but it's nice to be able to give that. I can, you know, help give advice. I can, make sure people are doing all right and I think that's the most important thing and and it's a great group and if you are in that area um whether that's Manchester or um Cheshire and Merseyside you're very welcome to join either group um and it's just it's just a nice support network it's somewhere to go when you're just not quite sure or you need to pick me up or you need to see some cat photos it's been a useful group to be in and there are a lot of cat photos 
<laughs> okay, I'm not in that area anymore, but the last two years where I've been in and around that area, it is useful to see, even when people just mention things that have gone on in their life. I know you don't always want to compare, but if it is on a transplant kidney front, you can say, oh, there's someone else going through what I'm going through. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you know if other areas have got similar groups? Um, so in terms of that particular group, um, like a kidney information network run by kind of us guys, not at the minute. It is a plan, hopefully, to further develop it into other areas um, so that each area has a local group. Um, there are other groups about. Um, so if you, obviously, Kidney Care UK um, is a massive network um, and they have their website and they have a Kidney Care Facebook group, but that is not moderated in terms of the content on there so because there's thousands and thousands and thousands of members on there it can be useful but it can also be um a bit detrimental if you're not quite sure what kidney disease is about yet if you're very new it can be really overwhelming um there are local kidney patient associations in quite a lot of areas and um, the best thing to do is have a look online um if not, you can, if you're struggling and you need advice, if you get in contact with myself on Camkin, then I can always direct you to your local um, kidney patient group or try and find one for you. Because um, I get that people need need that um, support. It's, it's always useful to hear from other people in the same position, really. Yeah, absolutely. And other than Camkin, which you've been heavily involved with, you've done a lot of fundraising, which I've seen a a bit of online so your main charities they the liverpool transplant initiative and kidney care uk yeah 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 so um oh, well the plan was last year was to summit elbrus so matt elbrus is the highest um mountain in europe and it's also one of the seven summits it's just over six thousand meters um so it, I was going to summit that and raise money for those two charities that you suggest that you um, said then, but obviously COVID didn't happen. Um, fundraising now is difficult um, because, you know, nobody's in a good position and you can't get out and do things. Um, but I thought, oh, what can I do? I still want to start raising money. I still want to do that expedition, but God knows when it's going to happen. Um, the Liverpool transplant initiative is, set up by the royal um the surgeons in the royal and they go over to gaza and they perform transplants on um the patients there because they don't have a transplant system they did the first ever transplant there um back i think it was what the early 2000s and they've been doing them ever since and talking everybody children elderly people you know young people dads mums cousins uncles aunties everyone um and they do as many as they can and they train up local medics and they train up more surgeons to try and carry on that work and without it gaza wouldn't have any transplants that's that's the sad nature of it um so I, it's a beautiful charity and whatever i can do to help them i definitely will and then kidney care uk you know um they're a much larger charity a much na more national charity but they do some incredible work things like the um young adult kidney group they do like a mount cook weekend where they go in and do activities for the week and for some 
uh, weekend and for some patients that is, might be the only time they ever get to do those activities climbing and paddling and you know getting out and meeting other people and that is priceless for some people um so yeah so those are the two charities i've been fundraising for so in early december i shaved off my dreadlocks of nearly seven years um to raise the money and i think i raised about th- over three thousand pounds um which was amazing my target was two and a half grand to shave them off and obviously smash that. yeah absolutely absolutely smash that um so yeah so hopefully in the future i can do some more fundraising events um but at the minute i get that it's difficult um and it's really hard and it's really hard for people to be able to donate i think we with the liverpool transplant initiative i think we might have had the same surgeon i think yeah mr hamad yeah so yeah he's good <laughs> He's, he's, do you know what he is a lovely lovely man and what he's set up is is truly brilliant and um i just hope that the charity can carry on and they can keep doing the good work when uh, covid is kind of settled down because you know if there wasn't a transplant system then there's definitely not going to be one now with what's happened um so yeah and i think obviously at some point mr mad is going to want to pass the baton on to another surgeon in the royal and getting them trained and and taking them over and stuff so all of the money will go directly to that charity and you can find more information about it um if you just type in the livable transplant initiative um it is truly truly incredible mr hamad is a, a top guy great surgeon great charity um how can people donate to your fundraising for those charities um so i have a gofundme page um so it's linked on my instagram um tara i think my handle is tara tbash um yep tara tbash um the gofundme page if you type in gofundme um and funding kidneys the dreaded shave um you can find the gofundme link there and you can read a little bit more about the charities and you can read a little bit more about why. Um, so if you can make a donation, um, that would be absolutely phenomenal. Um, every penny helps and it's just ongoing. It's just ongoing fundraising. I'll share it in the, the show notes of this. I'll put it on the, the post that come out when this is released. So Amazing. hopefully more people can see it. Donate some money to everything you're doing and hopefully your expedition goes ahead in the not too distant future. Thank you so much for coming on, Tara. It's, I'm sure people are going to find what you've said very useful and inspiring because you have been through a lot over the last few years and it's still still at a very young age, which must be a lot to go through and a lot to deal with. Yeah, I think that it's made me like internally really old, <laughs> health-wise and mental-wise. Um, but yeah, as I said, like it's been a serious, serious rollercoaster of events. Um, but... I, I honestly wouldn't change it. Um, I think I'd change the impact it had on my family. I think that was pretty traumatic for everybody. Um, but for me personally, um, it was, yeah, it was life-changing, but in some ways for the better, I think. A <laughs> couple more things before we wrap this up. Um, of the many different things you've done, do you have an achievement you're most proud of? Sporting and maybe not sporting? Oh, God. You know, I was thinking about this the other day and trying to pinpoint one thing is really, really difficult. Um, I think that the the proudest moment 
um, for me was probably <laughs> was probably doing my first half marathon. Actually, it was one of the proudest moments I think I ever had. Um, and in terms of not sporting, um, when I was part of the shared HD group, um, we did a gala, like a a ball, and we managed to raise like ten thousand pounds for shared care at the Royal, and they called me up on stage and gave me a bunch of flowers and I was just like yeah I've done something (laughs) um (laughs) I baked a lot of cakes um but that was that was quite proud for me as well um I think yeah just everything that I do I try I try and I put my all into because what's the point in doing it otherwise um but yeah there's there's been so many moments it's really hard to nail down a few um I think, but yeah, it's, I think those two are quite quite good. I, I'd agree. I think you can be really proud of everything you've done through your transplant, your climbing, all your expeditions abroad, and now every, everything you're doing for other people in this country and abroad with the transplant <laughs> initiative. Uh, one more question before we go. What's one piece of advice you'd give to someone facing a transplant? Um take it as it comes I think I think take every step as it comes and there will be highs and there will be lows it doesn't matter if you have the most successful transplant on the planet or it goes absolutely pear-shaped um trans use your transplant well appreciate every single day that you have it and don't be worried about living your life because of the risks that might be associated with it you've got to go forth and have fun there we go uh, Tara, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, if you're listening, please go and check out the the charities and donate if you can. I'll link them all in the show notes, so they'll be above, below, somewhere <laughs> on the page you're listening on. Uh, Tara, thanks again. I've been Lewis Daniels, and you've been listening to Transplants Take on Sport. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.